0: Then Eliphaz the Tiamat answered and said, Can a man be profitable to God, though he, he who is wise may be profitable to himself? Is it any pleasure to the Almighty that you are righteous, or is it gain to him that you make your way blameless? Is it because of your fear of him that he corrects you and enters into judgment with you? Is not your wickedness great and your iniquity without end? For you have taken pledges from your brother for no reason and stripped the naked of their clothing. You have not given the weary water to drink and you have withheld bread from the hungry. But the mighty man possessed the land and the honorable man dwelt in it. You have sent the widows away empty and the strength of the fatherless was crushed. Therefore snares are all around you and sudden fears trouble you. Or darkness so that you cannot see An abundance of water covers you. Is not God in the highest of heaven and see the highest stars, how lofty they are? And you say, what does God know? Can he judge through the deep darkness? Thick clouds cover him so that he cannot see, and he walks above the circles of heaven. Will you keep to the old way which wicked men have trod, who were cut down before their time, whose foundations were swept away by a flood? They said to God, Depart from us. What can the Almighty do to them? Yet he filled their houses with good things. But the counsel of the wicked is far from me. The righteous see it and are glad, and the innocent laugh at them. Surely our adversaries are cut down, and the fire consumes the remnant. So now, acquaint yourself with him and be at peace. Thereby good will come to you. Receive, please, the instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. You will remove iniquity from your, far from your tents. Then you will lay hold, uh, then you will lay your gold in the dust and the gold of Ophir among the stones of the brooks. Yes, the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. For then you will have your delight in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. You will make your prayer to him and he will hear you and you will pay your vows. You will declare a thing and it will be established for you. So light will shine on your ways. When, you cast, when they cast you down and you say, exaltation will come, then he will save the humble person. He will even deliver one who is not innocent. Yes, he will be, you will, he will be delivered by the purity of your hands.
1: Word of the Lord. The kids are invited to kids' church with Emily this morning. I think you'll be outside again. Is that right, Emily? The basement has dried out from the flood, but has not been put back together. There was no flood, for those of you who aren't aware. The, uh, an act of vandalism left water on on the outside all night, um, which led to the basement to flood. So I guess there was a flood, roundabout way. Um, But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is our uh, third wisdom book that we've tackled in the summers. The first was the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs talked about what does it mean to live in sort of a well-ordered universe um, in which things work out similar to what we heard in Psalm 1 today, is that the righteous will benefit in this way, but the wicked will be um, like chaff. They will be thrown in the wind. What's interesting is, I think, yeah, when we think about Proverbs in Psalm 1, there's this human sort of temptation towards two ways. One is that these are general rules that exist with ex- exceptions, and yet because we are humans, we'd like to make general rules into universal rules that have no exceptions. This is what we see happening with Job's friends. The second book that we, we went through was Ecclesiastes, and Ecclesiastes um, really threw into question in a different way than Job does um, sort of what is the point of all this wisdom and searching. And, and for the author of Ecclesiastes, Solomon or Kohelet, whatever you want to call him, his sort of trump card for all that is, and then you die. And so the best thing that you can do is sort of relax into life, um, Take joy in the work of your hands, not the toil or the profit, and sort of, um, in a weird way, the, the phrase that many people use to sort of sum up what his advice was is to seize the day, just to, to let the day be the day and take it as it is, which throws into question a lot of the advice of Proverbs as well. Um, I was talking to somebody this week about uh, Ecclesiastes, and they're like, it's funny because I only know it from that, um, the song by The Birds, is that right, Don? Yes, there's a time for every season. There's this, that, and the other. Um, and, and I was talking to them, it's, that's actually really bad news in, in Ecclesiastes is that there are all these times and then what it ends with is God has made them beautiful in their time. And then we stop reading, but if you continue to read, it's and that is frustrating for us because we cannot determine the times ourselves. Sure, this picture may make sense to God, But it's hard for us in our limitedness to make sense of it. So this third summer, we jumped into the book of of Job. Now, next summer is the final wisdom book debated, Song of Songs, and, and, you know, we're going to do 14 Sundays. We're not. It'll be two. Um, we'll see what I can do. But, but this one, um, Job has this different question within it. And so one of the ways um, that I thought I'd just go over it today, I've been coming up with different ways of summarizing where we've been in the book of Job. Um, uh, it begins with the famous lines, In the land of Uz there was a man whose name was Job, which I think sets Job in sort of this mythic sort of framework, by the way. Not that it isn't true, but it, but it sets Job in sort of this way in which in a certain place there was a guy. Um, and what Job then becomes is a little bit of every man and unique at the same time. Um, The questions that Job is going to confront, the questions he's going to hear from his friends, um, the ways in which he's going to try and understand the picture of the world. Where does wisdom reside, which comes up in the next section too. What does wisdom look like? Um, That's what sort of sets it up, and what God says of where what the narrator says of Job, and what God says of Job, which is really interesting, is that he's upright and blameless, and fears the Lord and shuns evil. As we go through the book of Job, it is very hard to always remember that God has declared Job upright and blameless, who fears God and shuns evil. Because so often we'll jump to um, just to pick a text, Romans three twenty-three, uh, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. To say that, yeah, sure, Job lived a pretty decent life, but he at least deserved what came to him, which makes us exactly like Job's friends. Now, one of the reasons why I think Job is so long, and the book so important, is because we continually face the temptation to become Job's friends. And more than that, I think one of the reasons we continually face the temptation to become Job's friends is because we face the temptation to become friends, it would be, in some sense, much easier to say, I'm dropping everybody the second they hit suffering, so I will not mess up. I mean, this is, I have a little bit of this mindset that, like, well, if it could lead to sin, what if we just cut it off? That would be even smarter. Um, or, like, I go last at the potluck, and I always joke, well, first in heaven then, which is a weird way of scheming God, but then if you say that, then you've just lost your reward anyways. Um, Probably somewhere in the book of Job, some insight into scheming God like that does not work. Probably Ecclesiastes, actually. Anyways, um, we risk the temptation to then just not be friends, to not sit with people in suffering and pain. Um, uh, Kim Martin, who's not here today, we were talking, there's a plethora of books out now um, about What we say to people who are in the midst of suffering, what not to say, and um, one of them, uh, one of the more famous one, is called "Everything happens for a reason," and other things not to tell people in the midst of their suffering. Um, And so then it contains lists of things you're not supposed to tell people in their suffering. And the other, well, I think that that is good. Um, And and Kim and I talked through all the different ways um, people come up to you when you're suffering. One, it's not that bad, which is a weird way to comfort someone. Uh, I know somebody who had that and they're fine. Um, The worst way, you know, you'll take I know somebody who had what you have and they're fine versus I know somebody who had what you had and they're dead. Um, (laughs) Nobody ever says that, um, but that would not be comforting in a sense anyways. Um, So at least... um, They're trying to be helpful, and I think that's the human relationship that we see portrayed in Job's friends, and we see it portrayed in ourselves. And so that's why we find ourselves often finding residency with these characters that speak to Job. And a lot of what they say has truth in it. I think what the book of Job makes us question is sort of that direct sort of way in which we can just apply these things without sitting with individual circumstances. And no, in a lot of sense... um, God did not give us rules for how the universe was governed because God was protecting us in that way. If we knew the ways to, which to measure everything so that it comes out, so that we win and other people lose, would one, not be good for living faithfully towards God, but two, it would not be good for us because then we'd have a whole world of people designed to do that. Um, God has given us wisdom to try and live into that, which is, I think is what the book of Job is about. And the Hebrew word for wisdom is the sense of like craftsmanship or artful living. It's not just the stagnant knowledge. Um, we often think knowledge is what God is giving us, but what God is calling us into, the fear of the Lord, is the beginning of wisdom. And wisdom is much more dynamic than knowledge. Um, and so uh, we've been walking through that um, Related to the question I just said about how is the universe ordered, this is the question, the ha-satan, the accuser. um, In many translations, Satan, although I would prefer they put the Satan because it means the ha-satan, the um, accuser. Um, And so we read the mass of the biblical corpus into sort of making that character into the one in the New Testament we call the evil one or the devil. Um, But it's not exactly necessary that he be that, so... We talked about that in the past. um, But his question for God is Job is upright, blameless, fears the Lord, and shuns evil. Um, And yet, um, he does that because life works for him. Does Job fear God for nothing? Is the question of faith that we do these things so that we get things? Because Job had a great life. We read in chapter one, Uh, many flocks, many herds, Uh, many children, a household that got together, and um, prosperity in many ways. Um, And so the first sort of question that comes into the book of Job is do we have faith because we have a sense in which we've been promised a good life because we live it? And not only a good life, I think that depends on your definition of good to some degree, a prosperous life because we live it. God will keep us from harm. Um, and I think, again, that's another tension that lives powerfully in our world. Um, the next sort of thing is, is, is so uh, God gives the Hasatan the power to strike Job's family, his flocks, his servants. Um, they're all gone. It's just Job and his wife. She says to him, why don't you curse God and die? Um, And he does not curse God. He still speaks faithfully and truthfully about God. Um, What the Hasatan has said is, if you let me strike him, he will curse you to your face. And Job never does that. Second scene, God um, in communion with Job, which I think is one of the themes we'll look at later, is that Job is one who has um, God's heart, mind, and words. Like, God is one who is speaking of Job. Um, there's a connection there, and what Job can't see is why it's broken, what what happened to that relationship. Um, but again, the Hasatan says, yeah, but you haven't let me strike the man. And um, God says to to the Hasatan, you can strike the man, but you can't kill him. And so Job ends up sitting there in, um, uh, on a pile of ashes. These three friends come up who... Um, don't even recognize him because he's so disfigured, and he sits in silence for um, uh, seven days with them. And then Job speaks first. This, I put this up because this is sort of how we've gone through Job. We had an intro, which was verses 1, 1 through 7. Uh, Job and the Hasatan, which described those heavenly courtroom scenes, which I've tried to say I'm not sure that's how we're supposed to take away the divine counsel functions, but is the inciting incident for the book of Job. Um, uh, We could talk more about the theology that might come out of if that's how the divine council functions, but um, it's more common that the ancient Near East idea of what the most royal people did is magnified up to what God is doing. So if we were to do that today, it would be what the most powerful people do. Um, It's weird to to define who's the most powerful people in our society. I always debate between tech overlords and politics, um, but they would have boardrooms and it would be a similar scene. And so they just magnify that up to talking about how God's um, majesty might be. Um, and then David came in, raised all sorts of interesting questions that I have not touched since then. Go listen to that one because um, David, David had a different perspective on much of the book of Job. That's not wrong, but was good to have because it... it raises other questions that the Christian tradition's been talking about for as long as everything else, whereas I artfully tried to avoid those. <laughs> um, uh, I, try to, I think I try to present different questions. I think that David, David did a good job of naming the actual questions that arise for much many of us when we read the book of Job, and I've tried to argue, those aren't really great questions, which is not... <laughs> you should just, you want to be the pastor, David. Now I'm just making myself seem like I'm not being a good pastoral voice. Anyways, um, after David went, we've walked through these three cycles, and this is what happens in the book of Job, is there are three cycles with his friends. Well, first, Jer- Job's lament. Job curses the day of his birth. He asks to have not have existed. He falls into this rightfully so, deep, dark depression, and, and complains, but he never curses God in that moment. So he's done seven days in his suffering. He's done um, his lament. And what happens then is the first friend, um, um, Bildad, I think, uh, no, uh, Eliphaz, speaks to him, and he says, look, can we reason together? Would you take a word of advice? Which all seems very human. And the first cycle he speaks, Bildad speaks, Zophar speaks, um, interspersed with Job's speeches responding to them. So three speeches from his friends, each with a speech from Job in between them. And what begins to happen is they begin to um, ponder why this might have happened to Job. Now going back to Psalm 1 that um, was read during the worship set, Psalm 1 has that very ordered sense of, of the universe. And what happens for I think us, when we confront suffering, is the other person's suffering, sometimes our own, but often another person's suffering, is a question for our moral universe. And so when I confront somebody suffering something that I am terrified of or have pushed off to the side and then realized this too could have happened to me, the type of logic and reasoning I do as, as one of Job's friends or as that person's friends is often me working through my own existential crisis to say, I like this guy. I like this woman. Their life is ordered in a way that I was friends with them, so they're not evil. And yet, something has befallen them in which I can't sum an answer for. And so, that's a lot of the reasons why I won't say you guys, um, or all of us, I'll say myself say stupid things when confronted with suffering is because we're trying to piece together back the puzzle of our own moral universe. Job's friends, let's say they're very convinced by Psalm 1 or the book of Proverbs, see Job's suffering, and they have two options. One is the way in which we have understood the universe and founded our lives and found our prosperity and goodness and safety is not as true as we thought it was, or Job did something wrong. Now, you're a better person than most people if you think you're right. I should probably surrender my highest ideals and goods, the ways that I've understood how all the world is ordered, just to sit with this one case of suffering. The argue is that that is perhaps the challenge of being a good friend and comforter and one who suffers alongside. And I don't think it means, although it often seems that way to us, that we have to question all of our moral foundations. Again, we, we take these, these guidances, these ways in which God has paved grooves for us to flourish, and we turn them into rules that can have no exceptions, no uh, human contingencies. We, in some sense, make our systems the product by which we would not have a fallen world. If my system is designed perfectly, there would be no more fallenness. That is not for humans to be able to do that, to live into that. Um, but what happens is, is, is there's three of these cycles. We did two of them sort of alterating. The last one had that beautiful phrase, I know that my Redeemer lives and I shall stand upon the earth and I will see him in my flesh and I shall see my God, um, which had the sense in which Job has turned to this idea that like he knows that he is innocent and he knows that he will be vindicated on that day. And in some sense, following the divine courtroom scenes, God has already vindicated Job. He has not spoken or cursed God to his face. Job is speaking what will happen someday, although it's kind of already happened if we look at the larger picture. Um, But that goes on for two cycles, the way that I described. In the third cycle... Um, the, the speech that David read for us from Eliphaz, which is, it's a very funny, we say the word of the Lord because it's the Bible, but it's like, it was the words of Eliphaz and he's rebuked for that. I always find ourselves in a, in an interesting, uh, liturgical conundrum where we're reading these words that aren't supposed to be the best advice we've ever gotten, but we respond to them because there's instruction in them for us, even if it's harder to see. Um, so uh, David read those words from Eliphaz. And then what happens is, is is Bildad gives a very short one that Job seems to interrupt. And then Zophar doesn't even speak, although it seems that the end of Job's speech is him just uh, mimicking Zophar. He's, he's, he's just saying, and this is, I know what you would say. Uh, the hard part is, and this is just a nerdy sort of what happens in this last part, is there's a couple different theories on like, um, the original portion of this book of Job is lost to us because some of the things Job says in this por- portion sounds like things his friends might have said. Um, some of the things that, um, that Zophar doesn't speak, you can kind of correct, it, um, manufacture Zophar's speech out of the things that Job says near the end, this, that, and the other. I read way too much about that. The, the best answer, I think, is you have to read it as it is because there is no evidence of Textual corruption. Like, with the end of Mark's Gospel, I don't know why I went into this. With the end of Mark's Gospel, we have manuscripts that don't have the ending that is in small print in most of our Bibles today. So that raises an interesting question. In the book of Job, we have no evidence with this section that there's any scribal variance, textual variance. It's just the way it is. Um, Point being is, it seems that. That what happens with Job and his friend is the conversation begins to descend into a storm. And the language of storm sort of picks up too. Which is interesting because when this thing is finally resolved, it is the Lord that speaks to him out of the storm. Now if you've been in an emotional crisis, a suffering crisis, a question of where and meaning and being belong and how to survive, with other voices it may feel like a storm. And with your own interior voices, it can definitely feel like a storm. That the voices sort of coalesce into this sort of um, more jumbly part as we go through these chapters um, 22 to 27, um, I think makes sense of what would happen. And that people, if you've argued with somebody long enough, and Job's done it for three cycles now, they begin saying things you said, and you begin saying things they said, and then you begin saying things that they didn't say, but you're like, this is how I'm going to explain what you believe. None of us have ever done that. <laughs> uh, that's the very human thing. So I think that, the, that Job descends at this point into this sort of mass of noises and debate, and it's hard to discern what's going on, captures, I'll think, a lot of the human being in crisis on the inside and on the outside, trying to piece it all back together. Um, and so you can read, um, let's see, 25, 26, and 27 um, and try to figure out that yourself. But I'm just going to focus on the earlier portions today because it at least is a little bit more clear. Um, and it, what David read as we go through it ramps up the um, uh, ramps up and it's Job's friends are choosing more and more to hang on to their moral system. And so when they start with like, hey Job, maybe you like stubbed your toe and curse God and that's why this has happened to you, so maybe you can repair that. To what Eliphaz gets to here is like, you have robbed from widows and orphans. Um, Again, I think hopefully we can see ourselves in this a little bit. So the rest of it, I'm sure you can put together. Job has a speech following this. Um, That's three chapters, I think, 28, 29, 30, 31, four chapters, um, where he sort of makes his case for wisdom. That's next week. After that, Job has a fourth friend who— people think might be an insertion later, but Elihu, who comes, he's the young one, and he kind of uh, comes as a young one who's sort of like, look, old men, I'm here to referee all this out and figure it out. Um, And so he gets some things right, um, like us or when I was young, when we used to interrupt in that way, and also like just totally like, hey, I'm really like hearing myself talk um, with the old men. Two Yahweh speeches, Job's restoration, and then we're going to look at a a more comprehensive reading of the book of Job. Um, So that's where we're going from there. Um, Important to keep in mind, as I've said, and yet he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me to ruin him without any reason. This is God's word about Job after the first temptation. Though the Hasatan has incited to ruin him, Uh, He maintains his integrity. And what we've seen in the dialogues is Job continues to maintain his integrity. His friends say, can't you just admit you've done something wrong? And he's sort of at the point of like, I haven't, though. And it's weird because his friend's argument is, you know, to be a good Jew, which they might be Jewish, um, to be a good worshiper of, of this moral universe and this thing, just say you're wrong and it'll all come back but what does it mean to say you're wrong when you haven't done any wrong? See, that's what Job's hanging on to here, which is weird. Like, I mean, if you think about it, it's, I often thought like, oh, Job's hanging on to like, you know, God needs to explain this, this, that, and the other, but he's actually maintaining what God said of him. I am upright and blameless. I fear the Lord. I've shunned evil. Um, and I've maintained my integrity and not cursed God in all of this. And, and so essentially his friend's argument perhaps to say, just say you're sorry, would be the curse of God. For him to say, oh, well, I guess that's the way it works. I was wrong. He needs to maintain his integrity in his resistance to the path, um, uh, which I think is interesting. We'll get into the speech now that David read from Eliphaz. It begins... Um, funny enough, with these five rhetorical questions. And they actually, he wants no, 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 yes. Um, And Job's answers would be yes, 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 no. Um, So like, can a man be of benefit to God? Um, There's a little bit of a question here, does God need humanity? Um, Which is a massive theological question. But what we see is that God has presented Job in the heavenly court. Have you considered my servant Job? Who's upright and blameless. Fierce. Like, so yes, there is some benefit, but Eliphaz, I gotta get the names right. Eliphaz wants the answer to be no. Can even a wise person benefit him? Eliphaz thinks God is so far beyond. The answer is no. Job thinks the answer might be yes. Can What pleasure would it give the Almighty if you were righteous? Um. Eliphaz is sounding more and more here like a deistic sort of person, like not a believer in the God who has wedded himself to humanity in Jesus Christ and previously wedded himself to Israel and rescuing them from Egypt and slavery. He's sounding more like, look, what does God really care? So the God who hears the cries of the oppressed in Egypt doesn't care. Um, what would you gain if your ways were blameless? Is it for your piety that he rebukes you and brings charges against you? Um, the answer to that one, Job, is uh, yes. But Eliphaz thinks the answer is obviously no. Um, is not your wickedness great? Job thinks, uh, you know, so he goes through these, are your sins not endless? Um, and his initial response with these rhetorical questions, I think, is interesting, again, in the psychology of how we suffer with people. Like, let me just ask some really vague questions that I know the answer to, but maybe to try and give you some perspective. Um, we do that to ourselves. We do that to our friends, too. Um, and so Eliphaz sort of tries to bring Job around to like, does this, is, could this really be that big of a deal to God, which is a thing we talked about last week as well. Um, and then he goes into these things that he thinks Job has done. Um, and again, Job has been, Job's friends, when they first met with him, admitted he was a pretty good guy. But now, as they've debated three rounds, or at the end of the third, beginning of the third round, they've turned on him. You demanded security from your relatives for no reason. You stripped people of their clothing, leaving their naked. You gave them no water to the weary, and you withheld food from the hungry, though you were a powerful man owning land, an honored man living on it, and you sent away widows empty handed and broke the strength of the fatherless. You would think if they wanted to prove he was wrong, they could have started with this news, um, but it seems like they're grasping at ways to sort of make sense of this. Now we read Matthew twenty five, Brian read that in the worship setup. Um, worship set, um, because I think it raises interesting questions. One, as a text that's weaponized a lot today, similar to what Eliphaz is doing here. There's there's a way in which we weaponize that text to say, but yeah, what are you doing for um, the hungry, the naked, those in prison, um, uh, those who are thirsty? Um, Because that's how you become a sheep and enter into eternal life, And if you don't do those things, you become a goat and you enter into eternal punishment. It's a very weird way to read that passage, but because we live in a highly politicized odd time that likes to proof text, that's one we weaponize a lot. Um, It's one we try to force on other people. What we all miss, myself included, often, is that both groups respond to that. Lord, when did we see you? The sheep did not go out saying, hey, let's go find some people who are hungry, naked, thirsty, and in prison because if we serve them, we're serving Jesus. They live their lives connected to the one who is the source of reality, and it brought them to those places naturally. Lord, when did we see you that way? My temptation, when I first really found that passage around when I finished college, was like, "Okay, I need to go find those people." And I wasn't—it's weird because when I think when people go through that, they're not saying like, "I need to earn my salvation." They're like, "That's the proper way to be a Christian." When in fact, um, and it is, but it's not done out of that thing. And I think, in in an odd way, I think it became when I was neurotic about helping people in those situations. Um, I think I became more like one of Job's friends, not of much help at all. Hey, I read Matthew 25, and I'm here to visit you because I noticed you're sick, hungry, thirsty, and in prison, and I only did it because I want to be a sheep and not a goat. Um, Lord, when did we see you? I think what's even more interesting is that Job has become one of those people. He is thirsty. He is suffering. He is one who is in his way. And and in that way, Christ is also one of those people. Matthew 25 precedes the passion account. Christ is about to end up in prison. Christ is about to end up naked. Um, From the cross, not in Matthew's gospel, I think, but in Mark's, he'll say, I thirst. Um, uh, That these are the ways in which Christ is and Job is sort of this first witness in that spot. And so instead of Eliphaz saying, I notice that you are in suffering, may I apply oil to your wounds, he accuses him of neglecting those who suffer. Um, anyways, I just thought that was an interesting connection to Matthew 25. And he just makes up stuff. So now he makes up Job's theology. Um, Yet you say, what does God know? Does he judge through such darkness? Thick clouds veil him, so does he not see us as he goes down about up in vaulted heaven? Will you keep to that old path that the wicked have trod? He's called him wicked before this, but now he's going after his theology. But Job never said, God can't see through clouds. Um, Job never has set God up into this theology, which is, again, another way we come to those who are suffering. We sort of project our own sort of, Questions about the moral universe that are raised, perhaps, onto them. But then what he ends with, and this is jumping forward towards the end of that, is this, this odd sort of thing. It's about four or five verses. Submit God and be at peace with him. In this way, prosperity will come to you. Now, even just the way those slides went, does this not seem like an insane ending to the advice he's giving? You've robbed widows. You have a bad understanding of God, but hey, look, man. If you just submit, everything will work out for you. Which is odd, because at the start, one of his rhetorical questions was essentially, what does God care anyways? Now God cares, but just go along with my system. Um, I think that's really the challenge for our systems, uh, because we are Eliphaz in a lot of ways. And, And Eliphaz's system is like, can't you just get back in line with the way that I understood the moral universe? Can't you live back into this place? We didn't read it today, but I do want to talk briefly about um, um, Job's response uh, to this. I'm just trying to think. Um, uh, Yeah. um, Job's response, again, exhibits this sort of upside-down trust I think we've talked about several times, which is this idea in which Job understands um, and believes in God so much that he won't let what's happening to him change his view of God, Which is very interesting, because it would be easier to amend our ways of understanding our lives in the world, to uh, understanding our ways of understanding God, to our ways of life in the world. Job refuses to do that even on the advice of his friends. Even today, my complaint is better. His hand is heavy in spite of my groaning. If I only knew where to find him, if I could only go to his dwelling, and this is Job, what he um, becomes obsessed with is this legal case he wants before God. I would state my case before him. Now, jumping ahead just for a second, Job will get his day with this God, and yet he is on the stand, and God asks all the questions. So it's there is something coming here, but it's not the way that Job thinks it's going to be. I would state my case before him and fill out my uh, fill my mouth with arguments. I would find out what he would answer me and I would consider what he would say to me. Would he vigorously pose me no? He would not press charges against me. I will know that my Redeemer lives. That's you can connect that to this phrase. There the upright can establish their innocent before him and there I'd be delivered from my judge. This is the type of confidence Job has in God. If I could make it to that place, God would vindicate me. I can't admit that I've abused the widow and the orphan. I can't submit and accept. My trust is so robust in the goodness of God that I will not fall for these systems. He continues. Um, Oh, this is the phrase about upside-down trust that was supposed to be on the back of the bulletin. By holding God accountable for God's side of an obviously broken relationship, prayers of lamentation express a kind of upside-down trust. Trust that God can handle anything and everything we have to say. Trust that God can handle anything and everything we have to say. Trust that God alone can answer the cries of our heart. If any answer is possible at all, This is what separates an authentic crisis of faith from a relatively cheap and self-glorifying atheism. Job is willing to stay in this place with confidence with his God while also sort of denying what God has done. It's a very weird way in which Job journeys through this upside-down trust and pattern here. Um, and he goes to continues on though, but he stands alone, and who can um, oppose him? He does whatever he pleases. He carry out his decrees against me, and many such plans he still has in store. This is why I'm terrified before him. When I think of all this, I fear him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Yet I am not silenced by the darkness, by the thick darkness that covers my face. For the Christian. For the believer, darkness for Job is real. It covers his face. In the words of Psalm 88, it is his only friend. And yet what both Psalm 88 and Job and his defiance here share in common is that they will not be silenced in their relationship with God. They will maintain the connection even though they what they experience, they see as unjust, as a world gone wrong. Um, he makes a, a very interesting moral observation in, in the next chapter, um, which is about, and I think if you want to read it connected to what Eliphaz said, is what he finds himself with the other innocent sufferers. In this sense, he finds himself with Christ in some way, the other innocent sufferer. Um, there are those who rebel against the light, who do not know its ways or stay on its path. When the daylight is gone, the murder rises up, kills the poor and the needy, and the night steals forth like a thief. The ire of the adulterer watches for dust. He thinks, no eye will see me, and he keeps his face concealed. And the dark thieves break into houses, but by days they shut themselves in. They want nothing to do with the light, for all of them midnight is their morning. They make friends with the terrors of darkness. Um, Job here finds that there are people throughout the world who suffer from these people. Um, and now, having been upright, blameless, shunning evil, and fearing the Lord, he finds himself in the community of people who have experienced that. Job has been relocated to, to in some sense, um, unity with them, um, life with them, in the way that Christ does, too. And so he ends his final um, truth. If this is not so, who can prove me false and reduce my words to nothing? The next chapters, will walk through sort of Job's sort of idea of, of um, wisdom, uh, his interlude sort of monologues. But, but to close today, which I think was trying to say just before this, is Job finds himself with Christ. Um, Job finds himself walking the path of an innocent sufferer. Job finds himself with the one who cries, My God, my God, for why have you saken me? Who endures the cross for the joy set before him? Who empties himself, becoming a, the form of a slave um, and taking the lowest place? Um, he becomes one who is suffering with the innocent as well. He finds that in the midst of his trials... There are other people who are robbed and who have beaten, and they form a community as well. So Job has his, and that is, of course, the community Christ often finds himself in. For whenever you do this to the least of these, you've done it unto me. I'm in that place, hungry, thirsty, naked, and in prison. Um... And so when you find yourselves connected to those people, in some ways, you find yourself connected to Christ. Um, So let us pray. God, we give you thanks for the dialogues throughout the book of Job. Though Job's friends came to him with compassion, sat with him with seven days in silence, and have tried to reason with him into a better moral state, they have borne false witness in some ways They have tried too much to protect their idea of the moral order and universe as they understand it, rather than let your word and your truth shine forth. They have chosen their systems over sitting with the sufferer. They have chosen protection of how they think the order runs over being near to those whom Christ says he is with. And yet, that is us as well. When confronted with suffering, addiction, and lostness and depression, each one of us often faces the temptation, and often, I believe, probably gives in to trying to project something of how we know the world is ordered. When in fact, perhaps that is not at stake at all. What is at stake is will we sit with them? Will we wash their wounds? Will we not be a tormentor, which Job's friends are called later, in the words that we speak, but to be able to embrace the silence, the lack of explanation, and to be near to those in that way? We ask all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you, one God, forever and ever. Amen.